14 through 16 of First uh, Peter chapter 1. Now last week we just looked at one verse, verse 13, and that began a new section in Peter's letter. Uh, for the first 12 verses, Peter gave no commands, no specific practical application. Instead, he gave just glorious truths, truths that, for us to rejoice in, uh, for us to be thankful for, truths about our election, our salvation, our eternal inheritance, our relationship with God. Peter's purpose in those first 12 verses, it seems, was to encourage his readers, these elect exiles. Uh, he wanted them, he wants us, even in the midst of our uh, various trials, to rejoice in the living God, to be grateful to God for who He is and all He does for those He's chosen. As, as Peter wrote in verse 3, he wanted us to declare with him, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So encouragement, uh, uh, rejoicing, joy, gratitude, thankfulness in elect, in elect exiles. I have to stop when I say that and really open my mouth. You know, Elect exiles was the purpose of the first 12 verses. Then in verse 13, Peter moves to some applications, some commands. He's written what it means to be an elect exile. Now he writes about how uh, we who are elect, we who are chosen by God, are to conduct ourselves as we continue to live as exiles in this world. As we continue to experience difficulty and hardship and suffering and trials. This is how we uh, Christians are to live as long as we remain in this world. Now, last week I introduced Peter's first three imperatives, commands, found in verses 13 to 21. And we covered the first command found in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The command is to set your hope fully on the grace of God, to live in hope, that is based on God's grace that will be given to you. And that hope is facilitated by and based on having a prepared and sober mind. Keeping your mind on the things of God. Having your mind filled with the truth of God's Word. Truth that includes uh, promises that the elect will receive the grace of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The elect will receive an eternal inheritance, which includes, maybe the culmination of, will be transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our inheritance. And Peter is saying, as you live as exiles in this world, as you experience various trials that cause you grief, based on the truth of God's Word that you know in your mind, live your life in the sure hope of the grace, the gifts you will receive from God. Don't let this uh, world get you down. Instead, hope in what God will provide for you in the future. Live in hope. That's what we looked at last week. And next week, we'll focus on the third command, the third imperative verb, if you remember, which is found in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
Again, this is how we're to live as exiles. And the third command, conduct yourselves with fear or live in fear. And we're not going to go into that right now, what that means. That's next week. And so this week, we focus on the middle command, the second command. It's found in verses 14 to 16. Let me read those. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The command is be holy in all your conduct, or live in holiness. Now let's begin looking at this by making sure we all understand the meaning of holiness. What does the Bible mean by holiness or, or holy or being holy? The concept of holiness has its roots in the Old Testament. As Tom pointed out, the ground in which God was became holy. God's presence made it holy. The Hebrew word for, the, uh, for holy means to sanctify, to consecrate, to dedicate. Uh, simply, it means to, to be separated or set apart from. Specifically, to be set apart from what is defective or sinful or evil. And, and sometimes, even from what is normal. In general, to be holy is to be set apart from the things of this world. And we usually think of holiness in, in these terms, in terms of being set apart from the sinful things of this world. And that is certainly a major part of holiness, but that is not the majorest part. Is that a word? I don't know. But uh, my point is, we sometimes, we often equate holiness with sinlessness or sin, not sinning. They, those are, are the same. But, but there's a whole other aspect of holiness that we need to see. Holiness is definitely means to be set apart from the sinful things of this world. And sometimes it means to be set apart from the normal things of this world. We'll see some examples of that. But even more than that, it means to be set apart for something. Consecrated for something. And that something is God and His purposes. Holiness comes at you from both sides. It means to be set apart from the world and set apart for God. Just a couple of Old Testament examples. Exodus 31, 15. We read, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. The Sabbath is holy to the Lord. The day is to be separated from the other days. It's different. Set apart from worldly pursuits, even normal, non-sinful pursuits like work, Right? And instead, uh, uh, the Sabbath is dedicated, consecrated to the Lord. The Sabbath is to be holy, set apart as a day to pursue God and His purposes. Or you could say the Sabbath is holy. It is to be set apart from work, from the work of this world, and set apart for the worship of God. Another example, 2 Chronicles 23.6, we read, Let no one enter the houses of the Lord, house of the Lord except the priests and the ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. Priests are holy to the Lord. The, the tribe of the Levites was set aside, set apart from the... They were, they were to be set apart from the ordinary pursuits of men of the other tribes. When Israel entered the promised land... 
the tribe of Levi was not given any land. They were set apart from the work of tilling the soil and caring for flocks. Now, they had their little flocks, but in general, that wasn't their job. And instead, they were set apart for, for, for serving the Lord, for serving the people in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The priests and the Levites are holy. They're set apart from the normal practices of the world and set apart for serving God and His people in the area of worship. And these are just two examples. Throughout the Old Testament, you find other things like ground. Tom gave us that example. Or people or animals that are called and made holy by setting them apart from their ordinary use in this world and dedicating them for God and for His purposes. And this idea of holiness carried into the New Testament. The Greek word for holy used by Peter is hagios, and it means sacred or sanctified, pure, morally blameless, being set apart from sin and sanctified, purified, set apart unto God. We see this clearly in, in our passage, uh, first, uh, verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, or set apart, be set apart from the passions of your former ignorance. Be set apart from who you were, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be set apart to God who's called you and who's holy, and conduct yourselves in holiness. In his song, Purify My Heart, uh, pastor and musician Jeremy Riddle has it right when he sings, Refiner's Fire, My Heart's One Desire. I'm tempted to sing this, but that would be bad. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. That's the key to holiness. Do you get that? It's not. It is being set apart from sinful things, but it's being set apart for God. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. So in summary, holiness means being set apart from the sinful and sometimes even non-sinful things of this world, like work, the Sabbath. But more than that, it means to be set apart for God and for His purposes. Therefore, to live in holiness is to live not for the things of this world, not in pursuit of what this world has, sinful or not, but to live for God and His purposes, to obey God, to do God's will, to live for the glory of God. And by the way, and this is a little side note, this is the answer to the question that is so often posed, how can God condemn good people who don't believe in Him? The answer is, or, or who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ? The answer is, because they're not good. They're not holy. Because no matter how set apart they've chosen to make themselves from the sinful things of this world, they are not set apart for God. Which is the root of holiness. They are not living for the glory of God, but for their own glory. Okay. So that's the meaning of holiness. That's what we're called. That's what this imperative command that Peter uh, gives us to be, uh, to do. Now let's look at the motive for ho holiness. Why, why should we be holy? 
What's the, what's the motive? In, in verse 16, Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44 when he writes, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The reason we're commanded to be holy is because God is holy. Our motive for holiness is the fact that our God is holy. So, so we need to understand first what it means that God is holy. It's a little different from what it means for us to be holy or for a day to be holy or for a, a, a priest to be holy. The holiness of God is the most fundamental thing about Him. Of all His attributes, and there are many, holiness is the only one, if you read through uh, your Old Testament, the New Testament, it's, uh, when, when it talks about Him, it's repeated three times for emphasis. In Isaiah 6.3, the angels cry out, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is set apart, separate from all others like no other. His holiness refers to the reality of His utter uniqueness. He's in a class by Himself. None compares to Him. There's no other Creator no other sustainer, no other standard of good and evil. God is the absolute standard of holiness. As Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside, beside you. There is no rock like our God. Our God is holy, holy, holy. Or as John Piper puts it, God is utterly set apart in a class by Himself, unequaled, unrivaled, totally underived, absolute in His being and perfection, without beginning or ending or improvement. In a word, His holiness is the supremacy of His infinite worth among all that is. That's a, that's a mouthful. So I hope we get the, 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 the point of God's utter, complete holiness. And because He is holy, 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 we are called to be holy. God's holiness is our motive, our motivation for personal holiness. But why? Why should God's holiness motivate or necessitate our holiness? Well, some would say, and uh, I would say that all human religions teach that we are to be holy or good, or not sin, or obey God, or serve God, so that He, a holy God, will reward us. So that He will give us what we want. We, we go through this difficulty of being holy, so God will look down and, and be pleased with us and do what, answer our prayers, do what we want. They say our holiness will cause God to reward us in this life with health and wealth or fame or fortune or whatever it is we want. And in the life to come, based on our holiness, God will reward us with heaven or paradise or nirvana or whatever. So in the case of all human conceived religion, the motive for holiness is so that God will give us what we want, what we think we deserve, what we believe we've earned. That is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. That's why I know that this is not a, a, a religion conceived by man, because all the other ones conceived it, as I've just described. And the Bible 
Christianity conceives it uh, the opposite. Peter, in the first 12 verses, has already talked about our salvation and our eternal inheritance. And there's nothing in those verses that says or even implies that our acts of holiness, our good behavior, is the key to our salvation. That's not mentioned. Instead, we're told in verse 3 that, according to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Is your name mentioned there? Is my name mentioned there? No, He caused us. He did it. Our salvation, our new birth, is not based on our holiness. It's based on the mercy of God. It's based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in verse 9, Peter says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There we are, and we have faith. Again, our salvation is not based on our holiness. It's a result of God's mercy and a response to our faith. As Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. And why does he say that? Because that's what we think. We, th- we read, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Oh, it was my faith that did it. Right? Uh, there's my, th- I-, I did it. My faith. Thank you, faith. And he specifically says, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is not a result of holy living. We cannot take one iota of credit We cannot boast in our salvation. It is a result of God's gifts of mercy and grace and faith. Amen? So the reason for living in holiness is not what the vast majority of people who live on this earth and even think about such things. It's not a way to earn salvation. To get God to give you what you want. So what then is our motive for holiness? Well, I think the the immediate context of the command to be holy provides the answer. In the beginnings of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 17, which follows, they surround this command. Peter highlights our relationship with God. Verse 14 begins, as obedient children. And verse 17 begins, and if you call on Him as Father. The command to be holy is set in the context of our existing relationship with God. Those who are elect, those who are chosen by God, those who God has caused to be born again, become His children. We're adopted into His family. He is our uh, Father who art in heaven. And therefore, our motivation for holiness is both gratitude to God for all He's done for us, and a desire to please and be like our Father who is holy, holy, holy. Not to earn His favor, but to please our Father. This gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, I want to grow up and be just like my dad. Growing up, maturing in Christian faith means we become more like our Father. We become more like uh, uh, Jesus Christ, His Son, the Son. So as those who are uh, grateful to God, and I pray that we are, for all He's done to save us, As children of our Heavenly Father, we adopt His holy standards in all things. Our desires become His desires. 
And because He is holy, 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 we're motivated to be holy in all our conduct. At least I pray we are. And so the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we be holy as our Father in heaven is holy? What is the means to holiness? What's the way? How do we do it? Now, in one sense, we are already holy. As the author of Hebrews writes, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Done deal. The word sanctified is from the root word holy, and it means to make holy. For those who trust in Christ, God has already, once for all, made us holy through the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ. In Christ, for those who trust in Christ, we're set apart from the things of this world and set apart to God. That's who God, by His mercy, has caused us to be. That's who we truly are. You have been sanctified. You have been made holy, not through anything you've ever done, thought, conceived of, but through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. However, we don't always live based on who we are. Like an heir to a great fortune who continues to live in poverty because they don't know or believe what they have, we too can live based on who we were and not who we are in Christ. And so notice Peter commands us to be holy in all of our conduct, to live in holiness, to live in the holiness that you've already received, to be who God has made you to be. And how do we do that? Well, in verses 14 and 15, Peter gives uh, us some insight into the means of being holy. Let's take them in chronological order. First, fulfill God's calling. Fulfill God's calling. Or, Or in the terms we've just talked about, be who God has called you to be. In verse 15, Peter writes, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's interesting that this this word called kaleo in the Greek has has two meanings. It means to call aloud, to invite. Hey, son, come here. Hey, you, come here. And it means to give a name to. Hey, son, your name is Michael in my case. We'll call you Michael. Your name is Michael. Michael. So I don't think we're stretching it if we say, but as he who called you has the name holy, you also have the name holy. So conduct yourself based on who God has named you to be. That is, be holy. Live up to your name. God has called us into relationship with himself. And through Christ, we have been sanctified. We've been made holy. And as we experience that relationship, we're being transformed into who we are, who He's called or named us to be. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that's the summary 
For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be holy like Jesus Christ. And those he predestines, he calls and and justifies and saves and he glorifies. And I think uh, God glorifying us means what he stated in the opening sentence there. That he conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it means for you to be glorified. When you see Jesus face to face and you're made to be like him. My point is, God has called us, he's named us to be holy. And God is at work overseeing the process of us uh, conducting ourselves in holiness. So first, fulfill God's calling. Surrender to God's work in your life. Be holy in all your conduct. Live up to the name that He's named you. And second, and again, just as a reminder, because our mind likes to go, uh, so God will love me more, so God will give me something. No. Live up to the name holy because of what God has done for you. Because you are so freaking grateful for who he's made you in Christ, for what he's given you in Christ. And for, uh, let's go back to the hope. We got all of that stuff we talked about last week. The hope that you have in Christ of eternal life, of an unfading inheritance, imperishable. Be holy in all your conduct. And second, live as God's children. So we're to uh, fulfill God's calling, and then we're to live as God's children. Again, uh, beginning of verse 14, Peter calls us, he says, as obedient children. Peter addresses his readers, same, same group, elect exiles, are also obedient children. This is a part of our identity in Christ. We were enemies of God, but now things have changed. We've been adopted into his family. And again, remember verse 3. According to God's great mercy, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has called us and caused us to be born again. We are new creatures in Christ. We are children of God. And as such, we're being changed by the Spirit of God. Go back uh, to verse 2 of 1 Peter Chapter 1. This describes how we become elect exiles. This is how you, this is how, this is how it happens. This is what it means. How you become a child of God. Peter says it happens according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Christ to Jesus Christ. Part of being a child of God is that we are sanctified, purified, made holy by the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? For obedience to Jesus Christ. When we're born again, when we become children of God, we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works to bring about our our sanctification, our holiness. Paul writes in Romans 8.14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So, so, So God calls us into relationship with Himself. We are His children. 
And he gives us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the way. The Spirit enters the lives of the children of God and transforms, uh, sanctifies us, makes us holy. And how does he bring, bring about this transformation of his children? Well, Peter continues, verse 14, conform to holy conduct, he says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God called us to be his children, and as such, by the power of his spirit, he's causing us to be holy. That's God's part. We're declared holy. We're holy in his sight, and then he's working uh, to cause us to be who he's declared us to be. That's what he does. But we have a part to play as well. And I don't really like to put it that way, since our ability to be holy is from God, from the work of His calling and the work of His Spirit in our lives. Without the sacrificial work of Christ and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we would have no hope of holiness. We would be forever in the grip of the passions of our former ignorance. But by the blood of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, God has freed us from who we were without Christ and empowered us to live holy lives in Christ. So he's done the, the lion's share of the work. But he commands us to conform to holy conduct, to be holy in all your conduct, to live set apart from the passions of your former ignorance. In the past... Before we were children of God, before we were born again, before we were saved by grace through faith, before we received the gift of the Spirit, we were prisoners to our passions. That word passions means what we desire, or as the NASB translates it, our lusts. We were conformed, we were held captive to our passions, our desires, our lusts. We followed after the things of this world. We were not set apart from the world. We wanted uh, money and sex and power and fame and security and comfort and mindless entertainment and so much more. And the problem is, the bad news is, those things, well, I don't know if it's bad news because God allows it and it serves His purpose. But those former things are still available to us now. That former way of thinking is still there. We still remember those things, and we can still conform to them. But the great news is, uh, we don't have to. As Peter says, these passions, these lusts, are of our former ignorance. They are foolish things. They're the foolish things of our past. And if we start living in them, then it's right to call us ignoramuses. Is that a word? Ignor You're an ignoramus? Maybe that's a Barney Fife word, I don't know. Uh, or uh, fools. These things come from a time when we were ignorant to the things of God. We were ignorant of His calling. We were ignorant of the power of the Spirit. But we are ignorant no more. We know these things in two ways. One, because I'm telling you, or the Word of God is telling you. And you know them by experience. 
We cannot plead ignorance. Because now that we are called by God, now that we are children of God, who've received the Spirit of God, we are not blinded by the passions of our former ignorance. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4.22, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Peter's passions or lusts correspond to Paul's deceitful desires. And the thing we need to know, the thing we need to believe and live based on, is that we must not conform to these passions any longer. We must be set apart from these passions. They need not deceive us anymore. Because by the power of God's Spirit, that work within us, we can see through the deception of these worldly passions. We are ignorant no longer. So when temptation comes, and it says, uh, hey, this is what you need. This is what will make you happy. This is what you uh, really desire. This is going to bring you uh, great joy and satisfaction. Uh, We know better. Because we know God. We've been saved and sanctified into a relationship with God. We know the holiness of God. And we know that it's only through God that we will experience true, lasting joy, love, satisfaction, pleasure even if you will. It comes through relationship with God. We can't be fooled into believing that what the world has to offer is better than what God offers. I say with optimism, we can't be fooled, can we? We're no longer ignorant to God's infinite worth. Once we were blind to God's great value, but now by God's Spirit, that foolishness and ignorance is gone. And we're beginning to see things for what they really are. Now we see that the holiness of God is, the, is of supreme value in all the universe. In the past, we didn't see God for who He truly was, is. Our lives were led by our passions, our deceitful desires. But that's no longer who you are. Therefore, those things are part of the past. They are former And even though sometimes, sometimes, maybe more often than we would like, these passions, former passions, can rear their ugly heads in our lives, they're fading into the past. But we must continue to be vigilant. We must continue to fight them back with the truth of God's Word, with the hope of heaven. We have so many weapons we must fight back those, uh, our former passions. They're not the defining power in our lives anymore. They are former. They're of the past. They're not us. We're no longer controlled by our passions because we've been called by God. We're God's children, and therefore we've received the Holy Spirit. And when we believe these vital truths, when we trust in Christ, when we know who we are in Christ, and when we understand that He who has called us is holy, it's then that we can be holy in all our conduct. So I exhort you with the Apostle Peter, as obedient children, that's who you are in Christ. 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not live in the past. Do not live as as one who does not know God. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. With God, who has called us to be his children and given us his spirit, with God as our example, his word as the holy standard, be holy in all your conduct. Separate yourself from the sin and set, set yourself apart to God in everything you do. Live in holiness. Amen? Now I have one more means of holiness. That's sort of the end of the sermon, but we got one more. That is, participate in communion. This isn't specifically addressed in our three verses today, but if you look down a few verses, we, we kind of find it in the context. I, think I'm not, I don't think I'm stretching it here. Uh, beginning in verse 17, Peter writes, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, way, from the futile, futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's going to be our passage for next week, but we're going to jump to it. Here Peter's calling his readers to conduct themselves with fear. And we'll define what that means in everything next week. But what I want us to see is that Conducting yourself with fear is related to being holy in your conduct. And the motivation for conducting yourself in fear is similar to the motivation for conducting yourself in holiness. It's knowing or remembering that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. This is synonymous with the passions of your former ignorance. And how were you ransomed? Who paid the price? Jesus Christ. By the precious, precious blood of Christ, Peter says. And that takes us to the sacrament of communion. Most Protestant churches, including Bridges, celebrate uh, two sacraments. Baptism and uh, we, some even call it Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. These sacraments are are rituals or ceremonies or ordinances that symbolize and help solidify biblical truths related to our lives. In the case of baptism, going down in the water and then being brought up, brought out, symbolizes our salvation, our death to sin, our cleansing from sin, our new birth, our new life in Christ. And in the case of the Lord's Supper, The symbols of the bread and the wine, the cup, represent the body and blood of Christ. As we partake of them together, they're to remind us of the death of Jesus Christ. They're to help us focus on uh, to know, to remember that on the cross, Jesus Christ, his body was broken and his blood was shed for you and for me. And this is called a sacrament. 
The word sacrament is derived from the Latin sacramentum, not sacramento, because that would be, that's probably has some, something in there too, but sacramentum, which is from the Latin sacer, which means sacred or holy. What we celebrate, what we remember today is holy. It's holy communion. It's a time set apart from other times, specifically set apart, consecrated to remember what Christ has done for us. To remember, among other things, that that Christ lived a sinless, a holy life. And that because of that, He was able to offer Himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Lamb without blemish. To remember that He willingly went to the cross to die in our place. To remember that He took our sin upon Himself that we might be forgiven. To remember that He received upon Himself the wrath of God that was meant for us, that we deserved. To remember that because of Christ's death, we can be born again to a living hope and eternal inheritance. And there's other things we can remember, but I'm just going to stop there. This time of communion, of remembrance, is holy. It's a sacred time. But it also is a time, I believe, that's crucial in helping us be holy. For if we forget, there's a reason God wanted us to remember these things. There's a reason He instituted the sacrament of communion. Because if we forget what Christ has done, if we forget His sacrificial death for us, if we begin to take our salvation for granted... Oh, it was free. Yeah, it was free for you, but it cost Christ His life. If we take it for granted, then we also forget His calling on our lives. We forget that the one who is holy, the one who's died in our place, calls us to be holy. But if we keep Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, in our minds, in our hearts, not just once a month... That's what we do as a church, but you as individuals, me as an individual, need to keep it in our mind continually, every day. I believe that God will use this memory as a further means to our holiness, as we focus on the death of Christ for us. It will transform us, just practically speaking. When you're tempted to not be holy to not be set apart from the things of this world, to, to, be set, to not be set apart for God and His purposes, to go down that other road, to take that other path, when the passions of your former ignorance rear their ugly heads and temptation is at the door, remember that Christ died for you. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember that God's mercy By His mercy, He called you to be born again. Remember that because of Christ's death, you have a new life. And it's not to be lived in this former ignorance stuff. Remember that because of Christ's death, you are now an obedient child of God. That's who you are. And therefore, you do not have to give in to the passions of your former ignorance. Because of Christ's work, you're free from that. Remember that because of Christ's death, you can be holy in all your conduct. You can be who God has named you to be, and you can live in holiness. And so as we share the Lord's Supper together, 
I want us to allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts today. To call us to be holy, for Christ is holy. Maybe there are passions. uh, Maybe there are lusts of your former ignorance that you've been uh, struggling with. Maybe even given into. Allow the memory. Well, let me say this. That doesn't mean uh, there's forgiveness to be found. That doesn't mean, oh, I blew it. It means I need to repent and return to the Lord. So allow the memory of what Christ has done for you to penetrate your heart. And in this moment, renew your commitment to holiness. To be set apart from the things of this world and to be set apart for, dedicated to, God and His purposes. Take a moment in silent prayer to confess your sins. The times when, when you've given in, when you haven't been set apart from the things of this world, and commit yourself to a greater pursuit of holy conduct, a greater pursuit of being set apart for God. Let's, let's just take a moment in silent prayer. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in you. Lord, I pray that we would that we would be set apart. That we would be set apart from the sinful, evil things of this world. Sometimes even the normal things when they get away, get in the way of our relationship with you, because we want to be set apart for you. For you and your purposes, Father. Consecrate us, sanctify us.